Like a lot of business owners think pay yourself first. Um, and I always saw myself as having a specific job in the business that I wanted. And it just was a long time before the business could afford to hire me. Like it, it was like, I, I wanted to be this vision strategy person and I could still be that person part time. But I think it was a long time before the operations were in place enough that I could hire a vision strategy person. And it was me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I took myself to Starbucks for a nice latte with the first 10 bucks I made with my business. From there, everything I earned went into the family kitty. I started my business with a vision of paying myself and not much else. Now, many years later, this has got to be the number one thing I regret from those early business years. Had I spent more time considering where I was going and how I could reinvest in my business to get there faster, I think I'd be in a pretty different place right now. That said, I don't beat myself up about it. I did about the best I could with the information I had at the time. You're listening to What Works, the show that brings you candid conversations about what's really working to run and grow a small business today. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. Today, I do things very differently. I invest in my team. I invest in professional tools. I invest in our growth. And as I'm starting a second company, I'm re-examining how I do those things with a fresh mind, which by the way, if you missed the 411 on my new company, Yellow House Media, you can catch up by listening to episode 232. Now, a huge part of what we do here at What Works and inside the What Works Network is purposefully expose you to business owners who have taken a different path. I want to equip you with more information, more options, and more experiences than I had all those years ago. And that's what this whole Scaling Up series has been about. Today's conversation is the last in our series on scaling up. We've covered a lot of territory, everything from starting with scale in mind to intentionally not scaling to leveraging your special sauce to building certification programs and more. But today's conversation gives us a crash course in how all those things can fit together and it tackles another common dilemma business owners with scale on the brain face. And that is, is your first priority paying yourself? Or is your top priority paying someone else? My guest is Deborah Junta, the founder of Design Dance, a community dance education company that's reaching over 1,500 K-12 students with arts education and social-emotional learning every year. I talk with Deborah about her vision for Design Dance and how it led her to making important choices about when she started hiring help. We also talk about how Design Dance has expanded from its original school partner into over 50 different sites, how she hires teachers to manage all those programs, and the nitty-gritty of how the business runs on the inside. We'll find out what works for Deborah Junta in just a minute, but first, I have a favor to ask you. If you enjoy this kind of outside the online business box content, I'd love for you to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help us reach more small business owners with this kind of content, and they make me smile because yes, I check our reviews every gosh darn day. Just last week, a reviewer gave us five stars and said, this podcast is so refreshing in a sea of do more and grow fast. I love listening and the monthly themes make it easy to stay engaged and not get bored. Thanks for truly making a difference in my business and life, Tara. You are so welcome. Now to leave us a review, open your Apple podcast app or go to explorewhatworks.com slash review. That's explorewhatworks.com slash review. 
Now, let's find out what works for Deborah Junta. Deborah Junta, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Tara. I'm so glad to be here. Awesome. All right. So we're going to talk about how design dance has kind of grown and scaled over the years, but I'd love to actually start small with this conversation. Mm -hmm. How did design dance get started? What was your first dance program actually like? Yeah. So I was teaching for quite some time before I started, um, and we initially launched as a uh, dance studio, an actual physical space, which is what I thought I wanted. Um, and so what I was really passionate about in terms of what I wanted my company to be was I wanted it to be a space that allowed kids to make their own work. So one of my frustrations in dance education was that contrary to other art forms, it was like this art form where you had to take 25 years of classes before anyone let you actually choreograph something of your own. Mm -hmm. um, where in other art forms, you know, you would never ask a child in a painting program to like not paint their own picture for 25 years <laughs> until they've painted other people's pictures, you know? So I felt like I wanted to create that kind of space. So that's what design dance was really founded on. And then my first dance program my first class, I, I wanted to really align with that. So the first class I ever offered was actually a story time dance class for really, really little ones. So it was like three and four years old, which actually wasn't my favorite age group to teach. Um, but I started there because that seemed to be the most, um, the easiest age group to start with. Um, a lot of parents in the neighborhood had really young children, and it seemed like um, the easiest place to begin in terms of marketing and um, kind of launching my business somewhere. And the Storytime program was an opportunity to use story and character to help kids tell their own story. So I really wanted to launch with something that felt non-traditional and really help to brand what we were all about. I love the point about dance being the only medium where we expect <laughs> like kids to just do the thing that we tell them to do as yes. opposed to making their own art. I have never thought about that before. <laughs> yeah. And I grew up really wanting to create. I didn't, I did not love performing and I really wanted to create my own work. So all even throughout my whole childhood, I would have these big choreography books where I would draw formations out and I would make my own dances and write them all out. And I would bring them to my teachers and I'm sure they weren't great <laughs> pieces, but, um, but I was always told no, I was always, you know, they wouldn't even look at it. And I thought, uh, you know, as I got older and I started teaching, I was like, well, they have, I mean, movement is so natural to us, even if we don't have the technique yet. Um, you know, expressing ourselves through movement is one of the most natural things that we have. Um, so we shouldn't be telling kids that they need to train more before they can have their own ideas. Certainly as you get older and as you train more, you have more of a toolkit to work with, right? Yep. Um, when you're making dances, but that doesn't mean you don't have anything to work with when you're a beginner. I love that. That is a beautiful business lesson too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about that, but yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like your vision for design dance has really evolved over the years. And now you're, mm -hmm. you know, you're serving over 1500 students now, which is incredible. Can you talk yeah. about how the vision has evolved, how what you thought you were starting is maybe different than what you're working toward now? Yeah. So when I started, I really thought that the only medium to teach dance was through a dance studio. That was that was what I had envisioned. And then um, about nine months after we were open at the space that we were at, we discovered that the building was infested with mold and the floor was literally sinking. And so we were forced to leave. Um, and in that time, I tried to find another studio space. I had kind of a rough 
nine months there where I was like, well, I don't know if this is over now. I couldn't afford to renovate or, you know, open another space and put dance floors and mirrors and bars in it. Um, So I was trying to rent other people's spaces, but I didn't have enough of a following yet to bring people with me. You know, people were, they liked what we were doing, but they weren't loyal to us yet. Um, We'd only been open for nine months. So people just kind of found something else when we were, when we closed. So I wasn't able to keep that same following And so I kind of thought maybe it was over. And in the meantime, I just needed to pay my own bills. And so the one skill I had was teaching dance. And so I started to promote my services to local preschools. Again, that's like the easiest place to get a dance teaching gig is with preschool students, even though it wasn't my favorite. So I started there. And a lot of the schools I was calling, they would only work with me if I was a vendor uh, because they wanted to know we were insured and that we had, um, you know, liability protection so I ended up, you know, teaching as an individual for some local schools, but under the name of Design Dance, just kind of as a middle ground job for myself. And after about nine months of doing that, I just fell in love with that model of working in schools because all the things that I wanted to do with dance, which were kind of non-traditional for a studio setting, um, there was so much freedom in a school setting because there wasn't an expectation that kids were there to become professional performers. Um, And so without that expectation from parents and from students, you could explore all the things that dance could really be. So initially, you know, once I got excited about that, I started to rebuild my dance company around that model. Still thinking in the back of my mind, like maybe I would open a studio one day. So there was a couple of years where I was like, "Uh, you know what, we'll do this and we'll we'll build some revenue and then we'll open a space. and then I started to learn more and more. I you know, started to bring people onto my team that knew a lot more about education than I did. So they, they brought in um, you know, the aspect of social-emotional learning, and I got really excited and passionate about how can we teach social-emotional skills through dance. And so we developed a model um, that really wasn't about teaching the technique. And the more we were doing that, uh, the less and less I became excited about having a space. And now I feel like I would not... <laughs> I wouldn't open a space if you gave me one. Um, I really love this model. There's also something fun about fun and also challenging about having a business model that has to adapt to a lot of different audiences. So we actually serve a, a lot of, we serve more than 1500 at this point and we're all over the city. We have 50 different sites and at each site you're working with a completely different culture, a completely different set of partners and students and um, a lot of schools are structured really differently than each other. So it's interesting and also a fun challenge to kind of explore how do you take what you're doing in one place and make it adaptable to people in a lot of different places. Um, and I and I don't I think when you're a, a storefront, when you have a brick and mortar, you know, you really figure out your one community and, and re- relatively speaking, it stays the same. So you're I think the marketing challenges are a lot easier with that. But also, you're not really thinking about how to be adaptable. Like We have to stay really nimble all the time. And, and I really like that. That is fascinating. And I had not considered that as a challenge that you would have. Um, but I'm really excited um, about digging into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so let's, let, yeah, let's just go ahead and dig into that a little bit more. When you are going into a new school, going into a new neighborhood? What are some of the things that you're thinking about in terms of adapting your programs for that specific context? Yeah. So a lot of the things, so in in schools, you know, a big, a big variance that you have is administrative support. Mm. So 
in some schools, there's a lot of admin support. So there's, you know, someone assigned in the school that's going to be our point person. So initially, it's sometimes just impossible to get our schedules coordinated because if there's not a point person, you're getting referred to a bunch of different people. You're constantly um, being passed off. And then it becomes really difficult for us to manage our operations from that point. So without a schedule, we can't staff an instructor. Without an instructor staff, we can't train them. Um, We can't book any of our management meetings. Like all of the things that we need have to come from that one administrative point person. So that's a big variance. So one of the things we're, we're getting to now at this point is that we're starting to really vet our partners. And we hate that concept, partially because we want to be able to serve all students, but we're learning that there's some conditions in which we're able to do our best work and serve kids at the greatest capacity. And there's conditions where we can't. So like if there isn't a point person and we're not able to hear back on scheduling, that's a, that's a partner that we might not be able to continue to work with until there's a little bit more capacity there. Um, but then outside of that, you know, once we get started in the school, a big variance that we have is class size. So sometimes our schools, you know, we have class sizes as small as 15 and class sizes as large as 35. Oh, wow. That's a huge variance. Um, So what we try and do is learn a lot about the culture up front of the school. So we set meetings at the beginning to really talk about what are some of the disciplinary policies that exist in the school? What are some of the challenges? Um, And then talk to the teachers. So oftentimes our program, we're bringing in kids from a lot of different classes. So we'll have, you know, programs that are serving maybe third through fifth graders. And so we're working with kids that don't necessarily see each other Mm -hmm. very often. Um, And they're not used to working together, but they're used to working with their other third grade friends or Mm -hmm. something. So you'll have these like cliques that form in the class. And you, we, one of the things that we really find helpful is to be able to have the teachers, their teachers, like the third, fourth and fifth grade teachers be an ally for us. Mm -hmm. So we'll sit down with them and ask, you know, what, what should we be looking out for? What's really working in your class and how can we continue to enforce that when we're in, in our, in our room with them? Um, another piece is like where to begin with them. So we think about a big piece of what we're assessing is social emotional development. So, you know, we are looking at how well are the students able to stay quiet during times where they need to be quiet? Um, what's the anxiety level of the students? Where are they in terms of, um, conflict with each other? Are they able to resolve conflict? Are they able to sit down and talk through conflict? Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of levels to where they're at. And then sometimes we're, we need to adapt the curriculum to that point. So, you know, a, a basic example is like if we walk into a classroom and the kids are all fighting with each other, we're not going to get through a lesson of, you know, how poetry applies to dance. Like we're just not going to get yeah. there that day because we're, we're spending the entire time mitigating conflict. So, but then in other rooms, you know, we come in and the kids are really ready for that. You know, they're, they're really well behaved. They're really excited and engaged. And so we might get way beyond our initial lesson because they're already talking about, you know, arts and writing and poetry in their class. And so we can move through that right away to the movement stuff. So there's, it's, that's one of the biggest challenges is figuring out where to begin with them. So one of the things we've started to do, and this is an evolving process, we, this is a challenge that we are talking about, you know, all the time on a, at least a bi-monthly basis, we're having a meeting about how can we be more adaptable. So it's a challenge that's not solved. But one of the things that we're trying to do is design the programming after we see the kids. So like, instead of trying to figure it out before we get there, having as many conversations as we can with the school administration 
beforehand and then do some trial classes. Like the first couple of weeks, give the teachers an opportunity to settle in and then look at the curriculum and say, okay, where does this need to be for this group? You know, if they're having a lot of conflicts, maybe we just need to do some, you know, anxiety reducing mm. movement exercises for the first four weeks and just get them more in their body and less in their head and dealing with their emotions. And then we can get through some of the dance stuff. Um, I think one of the, the, I think, great missteps of education system in general is that it's often trying to be a one-size-fits-all approach where we just say all kids in third grade should be able to do mm -hmm. this thing. And I think um, that's one of the freedoms that we have in an arts program is that we don't have to do that. We're not beholden to state standards. We don't have any standardized testing. We can really dig into like where are the kids at and what do they actually need. Um, but of course, at scale, from a business perspective, we have you know almost 200 classes a week currently running. Easy. There's no way that we, we can be as adaptable as we want to be at that scale. And so that, that push and pull of like, we need to grow as a business and we also need to stay really human. Um, we can't keep, you, we can't say this is what we're going to do and like optimize the operations across the board um, is really a challenge. And the more we can prepare the instructors that we put in the room to be adaptable, I think the the better that system works. Yeah. Let's talk more about the instructors because I'm really fascinated mm -hmm. by this piece, especially given everything that you just shared about how how much you're trying to be adaptable in each of these different settings, each of these different essentially markets um, that you're creating mm -hmm. programming for. So, but before we get into how you do it now, I want to yeah. kind of scroll back <laughs> to how you got started because you mentioned that you were originally teaching these programs. So there was a first uh -huh. class that someone else mm -hmm. had to teach. How did you realize that you needed to bring someone else on? And how did you kind of get over the mental leap of letting someone else do the work for you or with you? Yeah, um, that is <laughs> it's messy. It's really messy. So the first instructors that I had at the studio, um, I actually did hire people at first. And so my I'm glad we're not giving advice because I don't know that I would advise this at all. But my my strategy in the first few years, I didn't have any savings when I started my business. And I had signed a five-year commercial lease. It was very impractical. Again, not, not something I would advise. But I, I strapped myself to a lot of overhead at the beginning. And so I had to afford my own life. And so I was... My strategy, I think, in the first five years was to really hire other people to do a lot of it um, instead of hiring myself. So I did teach a lot of those initial classes, but honestly, I, I did hire people pretty early on to teach because I needed to have other jobs. And I it was always a trade-off. And I, I talk to a lot of business owners that feel this way. It's like, at what point do you quit your job that's practical that's like giving you um regular income to work for your business, which might not be regular income. And that challenge was like, I didn't know if classes were going to run. So if I quit my other job and we didn't end up getting enough kids signed up, then I would have quit my other job. And I couldn't really afford to do that, especially when I was paying all this overhead for the business. So it was constantly a back and forth. I did hire people pretty early on and it was pretty messy. <laughs> it was, I remember making these crazy uh, meeting agendas for them, like really long, like here's exactly what to do. And then they would do their own thing anyways. And I had no, 
I had no toolbox for like how to give feedback or how to um, align them with what I actually wanted. Um, I actually think I hired people maybe too soon, Mm. um, which is, I think, the opposite of what a lot of business Mm -hmm. owners tend to do. Um, I actually was um, too trusting. Like I thought, oh, this will just this will just work. Um, And I was really young when I started and I thought if I hired people who were older than me, that they would know more than me and they, that they would be better at it. And so I, I didn't, I was always taken aback when people who were older than me and more experienced than me did things that were really not in line with what I wanted or were really unprofessional. Um, so it was, it was a challenge and there was many times where people would let me down as teachers and I would end up jumping in and teaching those classes. Um, or I would have to kind of quit things as I went. I remember having to kind of bail on certain commitments that I had because a teacher bailed on me and then I had to go and teach that class. And um, it was really hard. And I think even in terms of the administrative process, I'm really pretty bad at admin work. Um, And so I was running all of the parent communications for a while and all of the school partnership communications and the calendar. And it was a mess. You know, people were getting mad at me. I was losing clients. And so there was a big discussion of like, do I we were making enough money. This was like a couple years in. We were making enough money where someone could do that job. And I had to decide if it was going to be me or I was going to hire someone. And I made the decision to hire someone who was way better at it than me. And it was a really big trade-off because I had to I had to choose to give somebody else a salary and not myself while I continued to work side jobs. Um, but I do look at that as one of the key turning points. Like when we, when she started, we had eight clients. And by the time she left, we had 35. Wow. And I think it's because she, she operationalized the business in a way that I just couldn't, you know, I just didn't have that, that brain. Um, I think now I've learned a lot more about operations, but at that time I was drowning in those details. You know, I, I, it was not, I was going to continue to make mistakes that would have hurt my business and it would have made it harder to scale. And she made it so that things were streamlined and we were able to add more clients to our plate. So um, there were a lot of sacrifices in terms of those things, like when to hire people. Um, and and for, my, for me personally, having to live a life that was not at all what I pictured being a business owner was going to be. I really pictured living this like I was going to have all this freedom and I was going to be in charge of everything. And that feeling of freedom didn't hit till probably year six. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> to be honest. I mean, I worked side jobs for a very, very long time. And I mean, that, you know, that example I gave with the administrative person, I did that with a lot of people. So like I hired other people. I had a team of um, at least 15 teaching artists and four administrative staff before I quit my other jobs. Amazing. And about how long did that take from when you got started? Yeah, I think about six or seven years. That's amazing. It was. I mean, a long time. Yeah. And it was a, it was really hard to sacrifice that. And I think a lot of business owners go the opposite direction, and that really works for them too. Like a lot of business owners think, pay yourself first. Um, and I always saw myself as having a specific job in the business that I wanted, and it just was a long time before the business could afford to hire me. Like it, it was like I, I wanted to be this vision strategy person. Um and I could still be that person part-time, but I think it was a long time before the operations were in place enough that I could hire a vision strategy person. And it was me. <laughs> Does that make sense? That completely makes sense. And 
uh, I, you know, just from my experience, I did the opposite. And I so wish I would have had the foresight that you had <laughs> to say, you know, I, I need help earlier. I need people who can do these things better than me earlier. This isn't all my money. It's other, it's actually other people's money. I just don't know them yet. Right. Like yeah. I wish I would have realized that. And I so appreciate you being so clear on how long it took, who you hired, why you hired them. And I really loved, um, or I really love that you had a specific vision for the job that you wanted in that business. Because I think that as small business owners, we are often, we often miss that because we assume we have to do everything or we have to do most yeah. things. Um, to, and I think that is probably a really key piece to the, your, you know, your particular puzzle. And I, I think that's a phenomenal insight. Let's talk yeah. more about the teaching artists that you have, mm -hmm. um, and how you find them, because like you said, I mean, you have a very specific vision for what you're creating. And at the same time, you're offering so much more than just, quote unquote, a dance program. You you mentioned mm -hmm. the social emotional component. Um, you mentioned, you know, it's going into schools, it's being adaptable. It's it sounds like there might even be an element of like co-creating the programs yeah. with the with the company. So how do you find the teaching artists um, that you bring in to the schools today? Yeah. Um it's few, a few different avenues. And this is another thing that we're starting to shift a bit as well. So initially, we worked with a lot of dancers. So, you know, it'd be teachers that were already teaching at the studio level. And then mm -hmm. we would try and recruit them directly from a studio or a professional company to come and teach for us. And over the years, as we've grown less and less in the direction of being a traditional dance program and more in the direction of a program that's teaching life skills really through movement. And that's what we want to grow even more towards. Um, we're finding that, you know, the dance piece is really minor. Like that's something we can train a little bit. So we've started now to, to hire teachers that maybe have a, more of a minimal dance background, but way more background working with kids. Um, we found that theater teachers are actually phenomenal at what we're doing. <laughs> um, they're very good oh, yeah. at adapting to a room. They're very good at improvising. Um, they're really engaging with the kids. So we've been hiring a lot more theater teachers. Um, and so a lot of, we have a, a few different avenues. So there's a couple like sites in Chicago that are great for hiring artists that we post on. Um, but we've had a lot of success partnering with the colleges in the area too. So we work with oftentimes a lot of younger teachers or, you know, students that are still in their program, and then we'll train them to be at that level. Um, we also work with a lot of graduate programs. So people who have maybe a dance or theater background, but are working in education, that are wanting to get a, a career in education. And so they're starting to learn those frameworks and they're learning about the school system. So this is a great opportunity for them to get in the schools and learn more about it. And then also use their dance or theater background um, to develop, you know, their actual program in the classroom. Got yeah. And what does the hiring process look like? Um, it's also evolved. So it used to be much more that that's an area where I've gotten a lot stricter over time because there's mm. so we've seen so many issues across the board. So we, we have to, we have to be really thoughtful about who we bring on. Um, so we typically, it depends on where they're at. So we always start with an interview and then, um, usually it's a phone interview. If that goes well, we'll do an in-person interview. And then from there, it depends where, what their experience level is. So if they're really experienced teacher, 
we'll do an onboarding meeting where we'll train them on the curriculum and we set them up with some tools and then we do an observation when they first start. And then we do observations with our management team throughout their session with us. We also do a pre and post assessment where our instructors um, fill out a, a, a pre-assessment around where their students are at. So kind of that um, thing I was mentioning earlier, where three weeks into their session, when they've gotten a chance to get to know their students, then they mm-hmm. fill out a pre-assessment that um, shares what they're noticing and then what are some core areas they're going to be working on um, and how they're adapting the program for that for that specific group. Um, if they're a new teacher, we always set them up to observe other teachers and meet with other teachers, kind of like a mentorship model, mm-hmm. um, where we've got certain teachers that are top tier teachers who've been with us for a long time and really exemplify what we want. Um, and we'll set them up with those people to um, so they can actually see classes in action. I think that's the absolute best way to prepare for teaching is observation. Um, it's definitely a very siloed field. Um, when I was teaching at studios, I never saw other teachers teaching because you're usually the only one there. Um, mm-hmm. So you don't, and you don't even get feedback very often. So we're really trying to shift that um, and really create this open door policy where our teachers are constantly training. They're constantly invited and encouraged to observe each other. Um, and we're really not too overly protective about what we're doing. Like I really feel like we're, whatever we're building on a curriculum level is a combination of many years of people coming in and tweaking it and giving feedback. So I don't feel like, oh, this belongs to us. um, So we have to protect it all the time. I think it belongs to everybody. So we we really try and and have that be part of our culture. And um, then from there, they get feedback from us. So like when, once they're teaching, then we're observing, we're giving feedback. And then we have um, at the beginning of the school year, we do a big week long training with everybody. So we bring in um, specialists in, classroom management and lesson planning in trauma-informed um, approaches to dance education. We really try and give everybody a, a toolkit that they can use throughout their teaching practice throughout the year. I, I love that. I, I love how much it's evolved and yeah. how readily you have admitted that things were messy. It's still really messy. It's still messy because it's still a thing. You know, like I said at the beginning, it's like we're a business and we want to scale. We want to be able to take on new programs yeah. and be able to grow our team. Um, but then oftentimes there's these issues that come up where we're, um, we're forced to kind of bring on people really quickly. Um, and that's where we, that's what I always want to avoid is that, that quick turnaround hire, um, because that's when you start to see more issues in the classroom. So it's a, it's a work in progress for sure. Yeah. Do you hire your teachers as employees or contractors? They are all contractors. That's what I figured. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious. Um, uh, where do I want to go from here? I'm, I'm just like, I, I love everything you just shared about uh, the systems and the, like, and especially the collaborative environment between the teachers and the, and the, the mentor mentorship between teachers. I think that's fascinating. I would love, um, to dig, I think, into the admin side of that a little bit more as well. Uh, you kind of really outlined through the hiring process and the performance management process, the kinds of safeguards and systems that you have in place to ensure the quality of, of your classes. But from an admin side, what are some of the other systems or safeguards that you've put in place to make sure that the programs are really being managed the way you want them to be managed? Mm-hmm. this is the hardest part of the job yeah (laughs) it really is there's so many details I mean if you think there's 50 50 sites that we're at and 200 classes every single one has a different set of parents they all have a different set of 
scheduling needs and rooms that they're in. Um, so this is an evolving process <laughs> as well. Um, and I think whatever we build, it's like, it seems like it works for about two years. Um, so we'll have a system that's working and then, and then it breaks once we grow a little bit more. Um, so currently the systems that we have in place, we use, um, Asana quite a bit mm-hmm. and that's really how we run the whole business. And what we're trying to do or what we, what we have been doing that's been working is we create um, template systems for every new partner that we have in our program. So all we have to do is copy that task with the subtasks and, it sh- and we have the entire system start to finish of how we manage a partner. Um, and then everything just gets assigned to our team members from there. So that's been really effective. Um, and it's helped me to manage my team without having to keep everything in my brain um, I think there's way too much that like people are doing just over email, like, oh, this person's going to do this thing and it got assigned to them in an email. And that to me makes me um, really anxious. Like I really, it's really important to me to have everything in a place we can see it. Mm-hmm. And also because the admin is growing as we grow, I mean, it's, it's a, it's weighty admin work and on this team. Um, it's, it's good to be able to get a visual understanding of what your how much is actually there so when we're when i'm thinking about hiring and shifting roles and bringing on support it's easier for me to look and see okay how much is this person doing and then which pieces would be easy to um to parse out for someone else if we're going to bring on some extra help so um asana has really worked for us we also use um airtable for data management which Mm -hmm. we love that as well. Um, and I think just having like systems in place that, that check that have checkpoints. So, you know, every single thing that we do, there's, there's reminders in Asana for just double checking, um, making sure that those things are accurate. Um, I'm all about just having, talking about like how we work, not just what we do. So we have a pretty flexible team or team environment. So like we work from home whenever we really want to. Um, we can, people can work remotely if they want to like go out of town and work. Like it's, it's very flexible. Um, but in terms of like the work, we try and say, you know, this is what we do every single day to make sure we always answer our emails in 24 hours. We're always answering our phone calls within 24 hours. We like every day there's certain checkpoints and I'm not going to get too nitty gritty, but like certain things that are part of the operations of this business that just take a daily check-in um, and we put that on Asana as a repeating task and it's just part of our day. So even if we're very flexible and we're kind of all over, having certain things that keep the business running really efficiently that are just part of the workflow and training people to say, this is what your day should look like um, and it's different for every job. Um, like for me, it's really, it's part of my day every day to like check the bank account and check where we're at on accounts payable. And even though that's something where it might not change that much day to day, um, it's good. I've learned that it's good for me to be really connected to the money so that I'm not making decisions um, with the wrong mentality about it. So like I make sure that that's part of my everyday thing, no matter where I am or what I'm doing. So having things like that for every role, I think is really important. Um, We also have a lot of internal checkpoints with each other. So um, you know, there's someone in a management role on our team is meeting with everybody she manages one-to-one every week. Mm-hmm. So um, having that, you know, even if it's just a 30-minute checkpoint is really important to, you know, discuss whatever issues are coming up. I have a, a thir- you know, hour-long check-in with anyone who's managing anybody else. Um, but it's it's still evolving. There's a lot of things that we want to automate that aren't automated yet. And 
one of the bigger challenges I think for small businesses is just like the cost of those things of actually automating some of your work is pretty, pretty intense. So we're still working on it. Absolutely. Um, your business has grown so much and I know that it's taken time, but the, the growth really has been massive. Was there ever a point in your journey where you felt like, man, I just don't know if we can grow past this point, or I don't know if I'm the right person to take the business Mm -hmm. past this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think that the administrative stuff is where it feels like, I don't know if we can grow past this point Mm -hmm. because when we start to see issues come up with administrative things, it's, it, it is like, you know, you have one wrong date on the calendar and it throws off weeks, you know, it's like yeah. now you have to reschedule the class and the parents are mad and you have to give them a credit. And like, there's just a million things that are domino effect from one tiny human error. That's a completely understandable human error. We're all, you know, working quickly. And, um, this is a business with very small margins. So even though we're working really, we're working with a lot of people, um, and we're in a lot of places throughout the city, we're still like relative, I mean, we're still in that small business, you know, revenue range. Mm-hmm. We're still um, have to be pretty lean in terms of our staff. So I think that that piece is challenging. Um, I don't know how much you want me to go into this, but one of the things we've, so I also have a nonprofit mm-hmm. um, and I've made the decision very recently actually to move, to bring them together. Oh, and the reason I'm doing that is because, and like, again, that's, that's a much bigger conversation about like yeah. legal and operations. So you can cut this out if you want, but it's, uh, it's the reason I'm doing it is because we need to be able to like share staff across both mm. so that our operations are a little bit more streamlined. So that's like the short answer of why I'm doing that, because I'm realizing that we have hit a ceiling. We hit a ceiling probably two years ago and we're in the red zone in terms of like uh, work capacity in our operations right now. So I am seeing that we're, we can't do that. So a solution needs to be made, uh, you know, implemented. Um, we've, we've tried a lot of other things too, such as like we've built products like physical products and digital products over the years, um, that, that we really see as an opportunity to build revenue that is, that has a much wider profit margin, um, that could help us with that. And so we can still stay really accessible price-wise for our families, um, but also bring in more money from another avenue. But as I'm sure you know, that takes an entire other oh, yeah. administrative team to run that. So it's not, there's no quick fix for that. But I would say that's the that's the biggest challenge for us is just all of the administrative support that goes into programs like this. Um, and in terms of me being the right person, I actually just made a hire um, in this direction mm. because I think as we're... Um, you know, I'm, I'm a business, ultimately I'm a business person with a dance background and I'm realizing that as our program continues to grow, we really need someone who's got, um, a stronger dance education background. And so, um, we're bringing in a new leadership role that's really focused on, um, curriculum development and assessment of our programs who can be, um, bring a little bit more expertise to that area. Awesome. What's next for you guys? Um, well, the, what I just touched on. Yeah. yeah. So our, we're bringing in, um, we're going to be combining the nonprofit and for-profit to kind of create a collective of education programs that can um, be implemented in a variety of environments. So we're going through some rebranding. We're going to be restructuring our team um, and really focusing on building capacity for everybody. 
Incredible. Deborah Junta, thank you so much for this conversation and sharing the ins and outs of how you have scaled Design Dance to the point that you already have. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. This was a fun conversation. Find out more about Deborah Junta and Design Dance at designdance.net. Next month, we're talking about resilience, including how our preconceived expectations can get in the way of finding satisfaction, how bad situations can turn around with strategic action, and how to start finishing all those projects we leave half done. You'll hear from folks like Charlie Gilkey, Alethea Fitzpatrick, Tommy Griffith, and Rebecca Bass-Ching. Now, if you're not subscribed to What Works, now is the time to hit that button. Get every episode delivered to your favorite device when it lands. This episode of What Works was produced by Yellow House Media. It was edited by Marty Seafelt. Our theme music is by The Shrugs. Find over 230 more candid conversations with small business owners at explorewhatworks.com.